Greg Kelly on the Red Apple Podcast Network. As a veteran of many years in American politics, I'm going to tell you something somewhat shocking. Joe Biden will not be the nominee of the Democratic Party in 2024. Kamala Harris become president. But the only way in their party they can replace a woman of color is with another woman of color. And yes, you heard it here first. The Democratic nominee for president will be Michelle Obama. Wow, that is Roger Stone, the political icon, New York Times bestselling author and Trump loyalist. You got to go to the Stone Zone, folks. It's all there. And listen to him right here on WABC, Sundays at 4 o'clock. Roger Stone just came out with his best-dressed list. Um, shockwaves all over the world, including right here. Uh, Roger Stone, welcome back. How are you, sir? Greg, great to be with you, and congratulations for, for the second year, making my 15th annual international best and worst dressed list. Uh, two, two folks at WABC there, Larry Kudlow, one of the great dressers of all time, he, he's in the lifetime achievement category, uh, and you are among the very best dressed. Congratulations. Thank you so much. I mean, what a, what a, you know, and by the way, Roger Stone, you're famous for your high style. I remember reading a profile about you in GQ magazine. I think it was 1989 or 1990. It was about your political acumen and also your sartorial, uh, expertise. I want to talk close in a moment, but first that clip I just played. Michelle Obama, the nominee, uh, you still think that's going to happen for the Democrats? I still really do. I mean, uh, Joe Biden's uh, inability to perform on the stump, his inability to seem to know what day of the week it is, uh, his reading the stage directions is falling down, uh, combined with the disastrous impact of his policies uh, on energy prices, inflation, uh, the looming possibility of World War III because of his weak policies abroad. Now you combine that with the burgeoning uh, corruption scandal surrounding his son, his brother, and himself, in all honesty, I think Democrats are becoming very nervous. Their rules with the superdelegates that I mentioned makes swapping out their nominee much, much easier than it would be within the Republican Party. Uh, And Michelle Obama is the most popular Democrat in the country. Uh, and her husband controls the levers of power in the modern Democratic Party. Her hu- Wait. Oh, yeah. Barack Obama, of course. All right. So uh, uh, Biden will clinch the nomination officially. Right. He's going to clinch it and then hand it over. What's the time frame? Actually, skip that. What does this mean for President Trump? Assuming President Trump gets the nomination, as I, I'm sure he will and as I hope he does. I'm a big loyalist myself, I consider. Is this what kind of problems does this present him or or opportunities? Well, first of all, it may not be as cut and dried as I believe it is. Look, I'm not a Democratic Party insider. I suspect that there's very substantial pushback from Dr. Jill Biden, uh, as well as Vice President Kamala Harris. Uh, and I'm not so sure that Joe wants to go. I think he wants to maintain the legal power to pardon himself and his brother and his son and other members of his family, potentially. Uh, but they could really. Uh, Joe could announce at any time that he doesn't feel up to it, that his health will not allow it. Uh, it would be probably easier to do it before the convention, but I think it's an open question. Uh, I talked to President Trump uh, about this uh, generally uh, a couple of weeks ago. He'd prefer a rematch with Joe Biden, which I think is understandable. The president believes he won last time against Joe Biden. 
I think she can beat him again, in his view. Uh, and he'd prefer to run against the weakest Democrat. That would be Joe Biden. But Trump is uh, the Trump juggernaut just continues to amaze. I mean, Greg, it's counterintuitive. Normally, a candidate gets charged with crimes. They go down in the polls. Their money dries up. In this case, Trump gets charged with fabricated crimes, uh, really elected interference. Uh, and it is turbocharged his standing with the American people, with the voters, and brought in millions of dollars of small and medium-sized campaign contributions. You know, um, you uh, you touched on a couple of things there. Uh, I want to go back to 1972 when, when, when Biden became a big shot in politics. 1972. This is even before Watergate, or before Watergate broke. Do you think Joe Biden learned a bunch of lessons back then, like, you know, politicians back then, they cut all kinds of corners. And I think he stopped growing intellectually. And he did all these things that LBJ did and Nixon did to some degree. You know, you could get rich in politics. And that's kind of the playbook he's been following because he became a big shot when he was 29 years old, before Watergate, before all that stuff. And he's kind of trapped in that era. I agree with that analysis. I think Joe Biden's brother and his son have been absolutely rapacious in terms of using Joe Biden's position to enrich themselves. And it appears, based on the work of Representative Comer and the Oversight Committee, to also uh, enrich uh, Joe and Jill Biden. Uh, It's interesting. I had dinner recently with a former Democrat U.S. senator, no longer serving, uh, who said, look, Joe was he was never well liked in the Senate. Uh, Normally, if a Democrat senator went to another Democrat senator with a matter that was important to them, but not in their committee, they would get a courtesy uh, from Joe Biden. You would get a fundraising request. Oh, you want me to do that? Well, you got to your guys have to raise me 100 grand. Uh, he's always been kind of a know it all, kind of a smart aleck, uh, going back to the Clarence Thomas hearings, particularly. Uh, so, yeah, I think he was trapped in a, another era. And uh, in all honesty, He hung out with the segregationist clique in the Senate when he got there. He ran in 1972 in opposition to desegregation of the Wilmington Public Schools uh, and as an opponent uh, of busing. And, of course, he is uh, responsible for the 1984, uh, pardon me, 1994 crime bill, uh, which criminalized uh, for the first time, provided the the mandatory sentences for the first time nonviolent crime of possession of small amounts of drugs. Now, I'm not for drugs, but those kind of people with no prior criminal record, they belong in drug treatment programs, not incarcerated. We're not talking about drug kingpins or drug dealers. Uh, We're talking about, you know, the housewife with three kids uh, who's trying to make ends meet and gets caught with a small amount of marijuana in her purse. Hey, I'm going to have discretion, you know, totally, totally. And, Hey, here's another little sign about Joe Biden. And I'm going through, uh, I believe, let's see here. Joe Biden has made the list in the past, your list, best dressed. You know what? Say whatever you want to say about Joe Biden. He dresses very well. And in my opinion, too well. If you look closely, that his clothes are very, very expensive and they always have been. In fact, um, I think it was Rona Barrett or Kitty Kelly wrote about him in the 1970s and said he dressed rich. He dressed beyond his means or what was supposed to be his means. Um, is that a sign or something? Because he's a politician. He's not a, he's never been in the private sector for any you know, length of time. He dresses almost too nicely for a career politician. Fair enough. 
Yes, and I don't. How does he afford both a beach home uh, in Rehoboth and a uh, and a mansion in Greenville, which is the most exclusive part of Wilmington, on a U.S. senator and then a vice president's salary? So, I mean, I, look, I think they can resist. They can stonewall to use an expression as long as they want. Sooner or later, the finances of this president uh, are going to get laid bare. I think people are going to find that he and his wife, along with other members of his family, have profited handsomely. Uh, by their from their public service, you know, I see. Uh, we all know President Trump. They've, as you mentioned, they arrested him, indicted him sixteen times, and his numbers have only gone up. And uh, the likelihood of being him being the next president has only increased dramatically. I know you're a man of faith. In my opinion, I see the hand of God in this. You know, he, the hand of God is everywhere, but I mean, it is like in your face, almost laugh out loud funny in a good way how Donald Trump is triumphing amidst all of this adversity that they're attempting to inflict upon him. Is that a little bit, am I, am I too much out there? Because I think God laughs at, at people's plans and Democrats had this plan and it's just blowing up and going nowhere. No, I, I look, I totally agree. I've been very forthright here on WABC and my daily show at stonezone.com, uh, stonezone.live, pardon me, that I, uh, underwent a redemption when I had problems, when I was fighting the witch hunt, uh, one which I had done absolutely nothing wrong. Uh, I changed my life. I confessed my sins. Uh, I was redeemed in the blood of the cross. So, yes, I believe in miracles. Uh, I believe that Jesus Christ will not let this last best beacon of freedom on the face of the earth uh, go under. Uh, and I think the the man to to fix it, the man who has the courage and the stamina and the strength, and I think now the clarity of understanding to uh, stop the decline of America is Donald Trump, and I think he's going to succeed. I agree. I agree totally. Hey, uh, listen, in a moment I want to talk about clothes, but first, how are you doing overall? I mean, the government, my gosh, they've been hassling you, and the FBI showing up. I know I think you were issued a – a, a pardon or a commutation or whatever it was, you were restored, uh, but they are still hassling you. I saw MSNBC, you were writing a memo. <laughs> you were dictating a memo, which I believe we're allowed to do, and they were trying to make a federal case out of it. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. Everything you were saying was like totally constitutionally protected free speech. Where are you right now in terms of your uh, legal fights? Are they all done? Are they ongoing? What's up? Well, I'd like to say they're all over. I'm, I still have uh, 11 outstanding civil suits that have been filed against my wife and I by liberals and Democrats and crackpots and nut jobs. And, oh, pardon me. I'm being redundant. Uh, they're all meritless. They're, they're, it's lawfare. It's try, what they're trying to do to Donald Trump on a much, much smaller basis. Uh, but a, a week ago, maybe a little more, Ari Melber with MSNBC comes up with the fact that that Special Counsel Jack Smith has obtained the cell phone records for Donald Trump on January 6th, as well as the cell phone records of another unidentified individual. Uh, and then they cut to uh, footage of me correctly uh, pleading amendment before the January 6th committee to the specific question of whether I spoke to Donald Trump on January 6th. Well, first of all, Greg, your lawyer tells you if you elect to assert your Fifth Amendment right, you must do it to every question you're asked. You don't get to pick and choose which questions to answer. Uh, and the truth is, no, I did not speak to Donald Trump or any member of his staff on January 5th 
or sick. There is no cell phone record that will prove otherwise. And no, pleading the Fifth Amendment is not evidence of guilt. It's specifically not evidence of guilt. The truth is I had no contact with the president between December 28th of 2020 uh, and March 24th of 2021 when my wife finished uh, her cancer treatment successfully, I'm happy to say, praise Jesus, uh, and he invited us to Mar-a-Lago. So they just make this stuff up, and MSNBC is the very worst at it, to say the least. You know, um, Roger, I'm actually personally very proud of my January 6th coverage. I've uh, been one of the lone if I may say so, truth tellers, and uh, I think uh, some of the key questions haven't been answered. They haven't even been asked. But one thing I want to point out to you, you know, the left and the January 6th committee, they'd love to point out that, well, Brian Kilmeade called President Trump on January 6th and didn't get through but told him he had to put out a statement. And, uh, you know, some friend of uh, Ivanka Trump's tried to get through and called him and had this advice. You know who did not call him? His vice president didn't call him. The chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff did not call him. Uh, His secretary of defense did not call him. All of these people, they did not initiate phone calls to the president. And the presidency doesn't work where, I don't know, the president is sitting there like a security guard and he monitors the video and says, oh, there's a problem in the basement of the Capitol. I better call somebody. That is totally absurd. Do you think it's – does it reveal something that people like Pence – did not pick up the phone, and they don't point it out? Nobody has pointed that out, as far as I can see. Oh, well, I can tell you this. The January 6th committee hearing was a, was a ridiculous kabuki dance. Uh, every member of the committee was anti-Trump, so there was no balance. In my particular case, uh, the witnesses perjured themselves. Uh, one specific witness, Cassidy Hutchison, said that uh, White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows was told by President Trump Call Roger Stone and General Michael Flynn on the 5th to find out what was happening on the 6th. Greg, there is no such call. That just never happened, period. Just never happened. It's just made up. In other cases, they, they mix and match, so they'll show a, they'll use a, an audio voice track of you, but they match it to a different, to a, a different uh, uh, visual. Uh, it, and that's why they destroyed all the evidence, by the way. Uh, I'd like to see Speaker Johnson uh, now appoint a committee of the House to investigate the investigation done by the January 6th committee. And he ought to get on with that. He ought to get on with that. Hey, uh, listen, do me a favor. Can you just stick with me for uh, uh, through one commercial break? I want to talk to you sure. about martinis, and I want to talk to you about your amazing wardrobe in this list. Thank you very much. Roger Stone, we'll be right back. Greg Kelly on the Red Apple Podcast Network. Well, we're back with the legendary, iconic uh, Roger Stone, who just came out with that best dress list and worst dress list. you got to go to the Stone Zone, stonezone.com, for all kinds of content and uh, uh, maybe even some merchandise. Really great stuff. Roger Stone. Roger Stone, thanks again. Um, how, did, how did you find out that Nixon liked his martinis a certain way? In what way was that? Well, in the uh, in his post-presidential years, um, uh, I worked closely with President Nixon, uh, handling his schedule and uh, vetting invitations, uh, running political errands, passing messages, and so on. Uh, and Nixon himself was very uh, was not very introspective. He was very very forward looking. It was very hard to get him to talk about the past. You know, Eisenhower, Jack Kennedy, uh, the attack on Caracas, the uh, the great events of his life, Joe McCarthy. 
except for when he had a couple cocktails. <laughs> then he became absolutely loquacious. Uh, and uh, he calls uh, his martini recipe the silver bullet. He would say, do you want a silver bullet? <laughs> this was uh, originally in his townhouse on the Upper East Side, later out in Saddle River, New Jersey. And I said, yes, sir, I'd love one. So uh, here is the recipe. You take a bottle of olives. Uh, you drain the juice, you fill it with water, you shake it up, you drain the water, you fill it with dry vermouth, you put it in the refrigerator. You have pre-chilled a couple of martini glasses by splashing with water, throwing them in the freezer. Now you take uh, your cocktail shaker, uh, which could be aluminum or could be sterling silver. Uh, you fill it with a combination of both cracked but also cubed ice. Uh, you pour in the suitable amount, in this case, of vodka, uh, and you shake very, very, very aggressively, huh. as Nixon would say. If there are not tiny shards of ice on the surface of the martini, well, that means you effed it up. Uh, and uh, you, you pour it into your glass. You retrieve the bottle from the refrigerator. You drop in one or two marinated olives, and there you have Richard Nixon's silver bullet. And I said, wow, Mr. President, this is really great. He said, yeah, I got the recipe from Winston Churchill. <laughs> wow. Well, I'm glad the recipe is over because it's very tempting. I stopped drinking about six years ago, but boy, oh boy, that sounds really, really good. Hey, you mentioned the townhouse on the Upper East Side. I don't know if you know this, but listen to this, Roger. That townhouse was, uh, I believe, on East 65th between 3rd and Lex. You know who else lived on East 65th between 3rd and Lex? Three other presidents. Donald Trump lived there for a time. Uh, FDR lived there for uh, many years, and General Grant lived there. So what is that? One, two, three, four presidents on one block in New York City. Isn't that crazy? Did you know I that? Really did. I did not know that. But then uh, uh, in Dallas on November twenty second, 1963, uh, John Kennedy was there. That's one president. Lyndon Johnson was there. He became president. Richard Nixon was in town. He was a former vice president who would become president. Uh, and George H.W. Bush just happened to be in town. Ooh. What are the odds on that? I did not know about George H.W. Bush. Hey, and maybe you can verify this for me. Um, I heard that Nixon found out about Kennedy's death. So he flies out of Dallas, and uh, you know Nick, uh, Kennedy's not dead yet. He gets to LaGuardia, gets out, and some woman, he's in his car, and a woman is like flailing on the corner, and then she faints, and they get out to see what's wrong with her, and then she faints again. And she tells him, oh, Kennedy just died, and, and, and then I saw you. So she was totally traumatized. Is that a true story? How did Nixon find out about Kennedy? Do we know? Uh, that, is, that is all accurate. Uh, he then told the cab driver to turn on the radio, uh, and he heard the report that Kennedy had uh, been shot. Uh, it had not yet been verified that he was dead. By the time he got to his, uh, uh, his uh, apartment building on Park Avenue, where he lived in the same building as Oops. Oh, shoot. Did we lose him? Doorman said, uh, uh, oh, Mr. Vice President, I have terrible news. The president is dead. Nixon then went to his apartment, called J. Edgar Hoover, the head of the FBI, who, of course, he knew well, and said, uh, tell me, Edgar, uh, was it one of those right wing nuts? Uh, and Hoover said, no, Dick, it was a communist, which is interesting because Lee Harvey Oswald had not yet been apprehended. Wow. 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 Man, Roger Stone, you're amazing. The knowledge, the experience. And you know what? 
Uh, you're an expert, but you, you're a character, too, in the best way. You know, America's become so bland in so many ways, and you're out there. We appreciate you. Everybody's got to go to the Stone Zone and get this. Not to brag, uh, Roger Stone, but I just got a text from, you know who, the President of the United States, with a picture of your best dress list and my name circled, Greg. I think this is absolutely fantastic. Best to you and John Katz. NCR, I know who that is. Thank you. Thank you so much, Roger. Thank you so much, Greg. God bless you. And Happy New Year.